Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Hey, Reunion. How are you? All right. Seattle. I was in Seattle last week. I missed you guys. Uh, it's, it's really good to be back. There's no place that I would rather be than right here with you guys. I love Reunion. And it was so fun. Um, we had a blast, but I was ready to come back. And it's, it's hard to miss Sundays with you guys. A few weeks ago, we talked about holy frustration. How many of you guys were here for that? How many of you are frustrated? Good. You want to be wholly frustrated. It's not fun, but you want it, I'm telling you. Tonight we're going to talk about it again, part two. And I want to start in Mark chapter 9 before we go there. Uh, I want to give you the context for what's happening in Mark chapter 9. Prior to Mark chapter 9, the disciples just watched all kinds of amazing things happen. They They watched as they laid hands on deaf people and they began to hear. They laid hands on the blind and they began to see. The mute began to talk. Incurable diseases were healed. Right before Mark chapter 9, 4,000 people get miraculously fed. Right before Mark chapter 9, they go up on a hillside with Jesus and Elijah and Moses show up. And a glory cloud appears and Jesus and Moses and Elijah go into the cloud and then the disciples go into the cloud. So these are really high water marks. Would you agree? Like these are things we would put on our ministry resume if you were trying to get a job in a church. Like, yes, I walked into the glory cloud with Jesus. But all of a sudden here in in Mark chapter nine, things don't go as expected and they actually come to a screeching halt. And I want to I want to talk a little bit about this tonight, that the disciples were unable to see and do what they were already seeing and doing, and it came to a really quick halt. Let's put that on the screen, and I'll read you Mark chapter 9, it's verses 17 through 29. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And a lot of translations say, but prayer and fasting. So prior to this moment, everything had been working. 
Everything was great. Have you ever fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and some fish? No, they just did. They're feeling good about it. And then things stop working. And it's a shocker. And they weren't used to this. And this is the direction I want to go tonight is that many of us, when we don't see the promises of God manifest in our lives, we'll start to create theology around what didn't work. And this is a toughie, but I want to talk about the danger it creates when we do that. And I want to relate this to holy frustration, and I want to relate it to the three weeks that we spent on tithing, and I want to relate it to God targets and moving forward as a church. Creating theology around what God didn't do actually creates a barrier that prevents us from entering into one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, and it's called holy frustration. I think that trying to get around holy frustration and creating theology around what God didn't do, honestly, I think it's one of the biggest hindrances to Christians being overcomers because it tries to eliminate the process, and we'll talk about that. In Mark 9, the the passage we just read, Jesus didn't give the, the disciples an opportunity to create theology based on their lack of results. He didn't say, well, it wasn't God's timing. God has perfect timing and he didn't do it, so Lord, your will be done. I love that one, right? Your will be done. You've heard that before? Have you prayed that one before? Yeah, yeah, let your will be done. Yeah, exactly. Let your will be done by you. We use the let your will be done as an excuse when we don't see the, desire, the desired effect and the desired outcomes that we want to see. And so then we'll start to create theology around those difficulties instead of being overcomers of those difficulties. This is not how the kingdom works. When we pray, let your will be done, we don't even realize that that's actually the most powerful prayer in existence. If you want your prayers to get answered, pray what he prays. Say what he says. He will answer those things. The problem is that when we pray, if it be your will, we're praying it as a question instead of a declaration. And there's a big difference in the heart set that prays those two prayers. The problem isn't whether God wants to do a thing. The problem is that we often just don't know his will. And let me, let me put it to you in a, a way that will make that real to you. The problem isn't just that we don't know his will. The problem is that we don't know his word. You have to know scripture. You have to. It's not optional because in scripture, he tells us his will over and over and over again. He he lays it out very clear. And we talked about this for a while um, earlier this spring, that there are few things as important as the word. In fact, today is the last day of our 40 days of feasting. We had 40 days of fasting. Then we had 40 days of feasting on the word. And we said that you, you cannot have the fullness of God without the word. You can have the word without the fullness of God, right? And that's why we never read our Bibles without inviting the Holy Spirit to direct our thoughts and to reveal things and to show us things because then it is just a book. Then it is just words on a page that the Pharisees love to abuse. But we have to invite him in and then it becomes life. Then it becomes revelation to us. And it's shocking, I'm just gonna be real, Uh, I've had people praying for me all week long because there's some tough things that need to be said tonight. But it's shocking to me how illiterate Christians are when it comes to the Bible. Knowing his word is probably the easiest way to know his will. And we pray all these prayers. I don't know your will, God. Read read the book. He's very clear. 
He's very clear. Listen, the Bible isn't a storybook. It's a will book. Most of the time when we pray, if it be your will, if it be your will, it tells me that you don't know his word because the thing that you're praying about, it's in there. And he makes it really clear what it is you're praying about. He spells it out hundreds, if not thousands of time on the pages. Here you go. Are you ready? Any promises given to you in scripture are his will. Any promises given to you as a provision in scripture is his will. Let me give you an example. God says, my name is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So God says, my name is God with you. Uh, he, He then says, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Then God says, my name is Jehovah Shammah, which means the God who is there. Okay? So let me ask you this. These are all promises. What then is God's will for being with his people? His will is he's with his people. That's his promise. That's what he wants. He, he will always be with us. Is it ever God's will not to be with us? No. How do you know that? Because you know the promise. It's right there in the word. You don't need to question the promise if you know that it's there. You get to embrace it, and that's your new operating place. That's where you start from. When you know this promise that God will never leave me or forsake me, he is God with me. He is the God who is there in my life. It's actually ridiculous and preposterous to start questioning that promise. I know it. It's truer than true. He will never leave me or forsake me. So when we know the will of God, we don't have to question it. So when someone comes to us and says, hey, Amy, um, I need you to pray for me. I feel like God is so far from me, like he's abandoned me. He's not close to me. Amy doesn't have to start begging God to visit this person. She doesn't have to beg God, please stop leaving this person. Please stop forsaking this person, God. We know that that promise stands true, whether that person perceives it, discerns it, or feels it or not. The promise is what's true. The truth is what's true. But let's say Amy prays for this person. It's Gary she's praying for, by the way. Let's say she... <laughs> let's say she prays for Gary, and Gary still says, listen, I still don't feel like God is near me. I, it just doesn't feel right. Does that mean that the promise has now suddenly changed? No. Because we know his will, we don't have to say, oh, wow, Gary, I'm sorry. I guess this wasn't his timing. Um, It's just not his perfect timing to be with you right now. Uh, Maybe if you pray more, he'll stop leaving you or forsaking you. You're laughing, but guess what? We do this to God. And we never reassess our theology based on our circumstances. That's why you have to know the word because it's unchanging in its truth. Let's put it this way. Theology has to be based on truth, which is scripture, not your feelings, not, not your circumstances. The mistake is that when we don't know the word, we will lower our theology to our level of pain and we will start to lower our theology to our feelings and we will start to lower our, our theology to a inferior reality. Your feelings The mistake we make is that we think our feelings are the superior reality. Listen, feelings aren't bad. Have feelings. God has feelings. He's a feeling God. He laughs. He cries. He gets upset. God has feelings. Feelings aren't bad. They just can't be our guide. They're your tools, right? Are you guys with me? I feel like I'm really plowing home tonight. All right. 
If we interpret scripture based on our experience or our lack of experience, we're going to have bad theology. But if we interpret our experience based on scripture, our theology will be good and we'll just recognize that our circumstances are bad. There's a big difference here. So when, when Gary says, Amy, I'm frustrated. I'm just not seeing these things happen when I pray. Good. Good. Because the frustration from the lack of actualized promises is supposed to burn. It's supposed to hurt. That's actually the good hurt. That's the holy frustration. This isn't Amy's frustrated with Gary for leaving the toilet seat up. No, this is like God-given frustration where we say, no, this is a promise. I will stand on it. I don't care what my circumstances say. This is more real. This is the truth. And it hurts because that's how God designed it. It's actually one of the greatest gifts that he can give you is holy frustration. So in Mark 9... Jesus didn't allow the disciples to come and embrace lies just to make them feel better because of their lack or the absence of the breakthrough in that circumstance. The pain that is experienced from a lack of breakthrough is supposed to do something in you. It's actually, it actually has a purpose. It's supposed to do something. It's supposed to make you double down your efforts to see his reign and rule and dominion in your life. It's supposed to agitate us to break through. So when, in Mark 9, when the man comes to Jesus and says, your disciples weren't able to cast out this demon, the first thing that Jesus does is he rebukes a generation for their lack of faith. And then he says, bring me the boy. And he heals him, which shows us his will. And then he shows the disciples how to get the answer and how to see the results. That's the theology created from Mark 9. Some things are supposed to be provoking. Months ago, I I talked to you all about the cost of Jesus, the cost of following him. And one of the biggest errors that pastors and ministry leaders make is that we try to make there be no cost to following Jesus. And I think that it's a terrible thing because following Jesus will actually cost you everything everything. Now listen, this is where people start to get legalistic. It will cost you everything. It'll kill you, right? But you you raise again with him. You've been raised with him. And where people get legalistic is they say, oh, Christianity is so hard. It's the hardest thing you ever do. No, it's not. Following Jesus is the most costly thing you can do, but it's also the easiest thing you can do. You don't believe me. Well, Jesus said, hey, come test this out. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Eat all you want without measure and take my yoke. He says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Oh, Christianity is the hardest thing. No, it's not. Then you're, then you're a legalistic Christian because there is freedom in the kingdom. There is light. There is life. There is hope. There are eternal promises. There are things that you get to walk in that you don't get to walk in as an unbeliever. You still don't believe me. We talked about the cost of Jesus. Listen, breakthrough and anointing are supposed to have a cost. They're supposed to make you ache when you don't have them. They're supposed to be a demand. They're supposed to move us to a new place of trust and intimacy and authority. And I don't know if you're ready for this, but from time to time, every person here has been intentionally positioned by God 
into conflict. I didn't say God creates the conflict, but he will put you right beside it. He's not afraid to do that. And the discomfort that comes with that is given to shake off the complacency with the inferior. It's supposed to hurt. God doesn't want to hurt you, but that ache, that holy frustration, he designed it that way. In in fact, he's never positioned you beside a conflict that you're not supposed to overcome. Will you pray with me? Let's pray real quick. Frustrate us, Lord. Amen. I've heard it said that any promise given to us through scripture that we don't have in our possession is the direct result of one of two things, ignorance or tolerance. Any promise given to us through scripture that we don't have in our own possession is the direct result of either ignorance or tolerance. There is never any reason given in scripture by the Lord for not receiving your promises other than your ignorance of them or your tolerance of not having them. Scripturally, the people who were not walking in the promises and the provisions were met with one of three things, correction, rebuke, or a call to repent. The only reasons that man can give for not having the promises and not walking in the promises are anecdotal. In other words, they come from personal experience. They come from lack of experience. They come from not seeing it in their own lives, but they can never give you biblical reasons. The question in Mark 9 wasn't whether God wanted the child free. The the question Jesus gave the disciples was, how bad do you want it? This is really frustrating it's a, it's a tough concept as we learn that sometimes God wants to do things through us and not for us. Mark 9 and all of the rest of your Bible, which I know you're reading, it, it's very clear that Jesus' lordship never decreases. What's Isaiah say? There's no end to the maintenance of his government? No, no, it's, there's no end to the increase of his government. It doesn't just stay static. It only increases. It's also very clearly spelled out that the church, the body of Christ, is the main vehicle that God chooses to operate through. It's very clearly delineated that his reign, his rule, his dominion were designed to flow through the church. And who is the church? That's right. The implication is that you and I have the responsibility to fight and pursue his will until we see those things flowing in our lives. First, you have to know his will. Do you know his will? First, you have to know it, and then you have to enforce it. We're God's ambassadors. We're his delegates, right? Um, one of my favorite verses is Matthew eleven twelve. It says, from, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Well, what violence is Matthew eleven twelve 12 talking about? Is he talking about fists and swords? Or is he talking about the violence of faith that believes against all belief and that hopes against hope? Violent faith never comes by tolerating lack of breakthrough. 
That sounds arrogant. I know there's people in the room who say you can't make God do anything, and you're absolutely right. You cannot make God do anything, but this isn't us trying to make God do something. He's given us Christmas presents, put them under the tree with our name on it. He's waiting for us to open them. We're not twisting his arm for a new bike. It's sitting right there. We have to get on it and learn how to ride it. My point is that when we don't see his promises manifesting, it's never because he hasn't made a way for them. It's never because the new covenant hasn't opened the door to those things. In this covenant that we're living in, he has provided for every promise and every portion of his will to be realized in our lives. Name one promise that he gives us that he doesn't want you to have. I dare you. Name one provision that he's given to us that he doesn't want you to have. The covenant and what Jesus paid for finished it, right? That part is done. Our part is not. In other words, his promises and his provisions reveal him. They don't reveal the lack of breakthrough. They don't reveal results. They don't reveal what the enemy does. His promises reveal his will and his provisions reveal him. So why are we talking about all this stuff? It's because we have a big old list of God targets that he's having us pray about and and receive as a church. He's given us some things. And let me tell you, a lot of those things are sprouting in seed form. There's a lot of those things that are actually in mature fruit form that have been on those God target lists for a couple months now. But there's also some things on that God targets list that aren't in any form at all. They don't exist. They're not happening. But it would be foolish to look at our circumstances and not seeing the immediate instantaneous breakthrough that we're looking for and think, well, it must not be his will. Let's just move on. Where's the next list? I want to tell you something. Is that there's actually quite a few things on that God targets list that were given to us to frustrate us. Holy frustration. Not because he's mean, not because he's angry, not because he's annoyed with us, but holy frustration is an invitation into intimacy. Holy frustration is an invitation to walk into promises. It's his way of saying, oh, that's not working. Come in closer. Come know me more. Let's talk about this. Most of those God targets are going to require a great maturity to steward. And I don't just mean age. I don't mean your, your reunion leadership. It, it's, a, it's a church thing. He's given these to the bride, to this family, to this house. We actually have to become mature to steward a lot of these things. And maturity requires growth. Did you know that growth is often painful? And growth often has pruning. That's why so many believers are completely satisfied remaining immature because it's way more comfortable not to grow. It's not as fun. fun. Thanks, Robin. We like fun. (laughs) But you guys know this, that great things almost never come without great fights. And they almost never come without discomfort. And I'm telling you that holy frustration will position us for the promises, will position us for those God targets because it makes, it puts us in a place where we are absolutely willing to pay any price, any cost for the breakthrough in the areas that are promised. You will not break into those things without being frustrated in a holy manner, okay? How are we doing? Oh, wow, wow. 
Am I speaking fast tonight? The other night, I didn't even get to these notes, and tonight I'm like blowing through them. Wow, what is happening? So recently, we spent um, three different weeks talking about tithing and stewardship at Reunion, and uh, I want to repeat a couple things just because I think this relates, and the first thing is that there are things that are far more valuable than money, right? Nod your head if you agree, okay? And we talked about how Jesus said that learning to steward money actually puts us in position for the opportunity to steward true riches. In other words, uh, things of the kingdom, the God targets. Money is the baby step to learning to steward things far more valuable than money. Money, stewarding money doesn't make you a better steward of money, although I think that it can happen. Stewarding money makes you a better steward of true riches, which he wants to give you. Right? The parable of the minas, the parable of the talents that we looked at. And what I think the Lord is saying to us is that we can't fully steward his kingdom and we can't fully steward the things that he wants to do in this house if we're tripped up by something so small as money. If we're tripped up by something so small as his promise to bless us through tithing. Like that's, go listen to the tithing talks. I won't even though we have a lot of time left, I'm not going to reteach tonight. But I will say this, tithing doesn't buy you anything in the kingdom. But it will open doors for you to walk through because it's a matter of obedience, it's a matter of lordship, and it is not a money issue, it's a heart issue, right? And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So with those God targets, we can't create theology that creates or that gives place to this lack of breakthrough. We have to steward these supernatural calls and breakthroughs promised to us and be willing to stand on the truth that they're ours. We have to actually go get them. His part is done. I think that he's challenging us. Can you, can you walk in, a, in that authority? So I'm almost done, and this is actually the most important part of the night. Um, how does this relate to us moving forward as a church? This is a big deal, and um, I was... Uh, my, myself and Rachel, we were in Seattle last week. It was great. Went to visit a church called Seattle Revival Center. They had me speak last Sunday. It was so fun. Love those guys. Hey, Seattle Revival Center. Uh, just great. And I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Seattle. How, who's been to Seattle before? Like spent time in Seattle. Like this whole section is from Seattle apparently. Well, I don't know about you, but I've only been into one city, San Francisco, that I felt more spiritually oppressed than Seattle. Uh, When I landed, my airplane landed, I immediately felt depression. I wasn't depressed, I felt it there. Like I felt the spiritual climate and I instantly thought like, no wonder why this is one of the suicide capitals of the United States. And we went all throughout the city one day. Um, God bless Washington State, I love it. I love Washington State. Seattle, it's not my favorite city, just gonna be real. Um, And I think the reality was this, is that we started to encounter powers and principalities that we're not usually under. And like, if you're a feeler like me, you can't not see those things. You can't not feel the things happening around you. And so we're walking through this city and all I see, all I see are demons. And I'm not a demons everywhere kind of guy. Like I literally start seeing creatures like in the spirit and they're over people and they're doing things to people. And Rachel, you guys know Rachel, she's a prophet. She starts like getting words of knowledge about their past and the things that have happened in their lives. And it was just so heavy. Like we literally left the city early because we're like, this is 
not my favorite thing to do right now. I'd, I'd rather not feel these things. But the reality was that we were encountering powers and principalities that aren't here necessarily, and so they stood out to us. We recognized them. We saw them. And once we got outside the city, we were fine. Listen, I never get headaches. I think I've had less than five headaches in my whole life, and one of those because I got a concussion, right? I had a headache the whole time we were in Seattle. I felt something literally pressing here and here the whole time, like literal fingers. And when we, we like rebuked it and we left and it instantly left, like that's not coincidence. This is a spiritual reality. You should never be afraid of that stuff. The Lord shows us that things so we can overcome that stuff, right? There's no fear attached to this. There was a lot of annoyance. I was wholly frustrated. We started casting things off of people, whether they knew it or not. Um, but why am I talking to you about this? Because I need to get very real with you. I need to get very vulnerable and tell you that I'm actually very frustrated right now. It's a holy frustration. And part of the calling on my life, part of my anointing is that I love the bride of Christ. It's, it's what I'm alive for. It's why the Lord has created me to invest in, to equip, to build the bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? You are. I love you guys. I love the church. It, it literally keeps me up at night. I'll wake up thinking about, um, the bride, both this bride reunion and the, the island, the, the state, the nation, corporately across the world. I'm just going to tell you, I'm really frustrated by some of the things that I see in the body of Christ and some of the things I want to see in the body of Christ. And I'm frustrated at some of the hearts, or sorry, the mindsets and the heart sets, the postures of our heart that we have as Christians sometimes. And I'm just going to be very real. I, I'm frustrated that a lot of the church in Hawaii has partnered with the powers and the principalities of this region. And that's not okay. But unless we identify those things, we're just going to start, our natural tendency will be to uh, be influenced by those things. When we were in Seattle, I, I wanted, like it was this weird thing, I kind of wanted to be sad. I'm, I'm not a sad guy, but I felt like this weird sadness. My point is that if we can't identify things. We can't expose things. And I'm telling you, when you expose things, when you bring light into darkness, it dismantles darkness. It absolutely turns the tables. And I want us to be the most discerning, aware church that we can be. Because there are very real powers and principalities in, on this island, in this state. And I'm telling you, you never need to be afraid of those things. You get to overcome those things. Many believers can't identify those things. They don't understand this. But if you don't identify them, your natural tendency will be to partner with them. And I don't want any of those things in this church because they're demonic. So I'm going to call some of these things out today. And I, I understand the risk. Um, I've counted the cost. But listen, the violent take the kingdom by force. And these things aren't just going to topple over on their own. These things have to be spoken about. They have to be exposed. First thing I want to say is this, because people get really excited. Everyone wants to know, like, what are these things? Listen to me. Um, I need to say this, is that uh, humility cannot grow in the soil of fear. Humility cannot grow in the soil of fear. And that's why so many believers in this region operate in pride. It's because they're partnering with the principality of fear, which obliterates humility. A few weeks ago during worship, I, was, I like to go in the back because that's where the action is, in the back. So I was, I was just sitting there worshiping, and I saw the Lord looking at the pride within the bride of Christ in this region. 
he was actually looking at it because it's a thing. It's a power. It's a principality. And he said this. He said, the bride of Hawaii is going to bend her iron knee, her iron knee, even if it means she can't get back up. In other words, this wasn't going to be a choice. He was going to break, he is going to break fear and pride off of his people. And I want to tell you something, that judgment always starts first in the household of God. There, there is an awakening happening on this island where people are experiencing hardships and they think it's the devil. But in reality, it's the Lord cleansing his house. He's refining And we saw this in 2020, we saw this in 2021. And listen, some churches are not coming back. They're done. Some churches still haven't come back. And it's not because God was being mean. It's because the bones of the bride of Christ need to be reset and put back into place. He needs his bride healthy. He needs it to function correctly. And listen, we're going to call out the powers and the principalities of over Hawaii, not don't go stand up on mountaintops and wave a staff like Moses and and rebuke these things. That's not how it works in scripture. That's not safe in my mind. That's actually kind of foolish. All you need to do is be the light set up on a hill because light defeats darkness. It exposes it. Darkness becomes afraid and it runs and it turns the tables. I just want you to be equipped. I just want you to be aware. You need to identify these things And you need to understand these things so that you never partner with these things because they're dark spiritual realities over this place. And people are like, what? This is Hawaii. It's all rainbows and dolphins and (laughs) coconuts. Listen, we will not be a casualty to this region's narrative. Okay? I want you to repeat after me. We will not be a casualty to this region's narrative. And as we identify some of these things, if you find yourself operating in any of these things, if you suddenly, if the Holy Spirit says, hey, Gary, I think you have some of this in your heart, man, you need to pay attention. We need to repent of these things. Tonight's a repentance service. We're going to have repentance at the end of this. If we find that we're operating in any of these things, rebuke it and get back into his promises and his provisions. That's all you have to do. Are you ready? Um, I'm sure there's more, but these are the ones that the Lord has been highlighting to me for 15 years. Um, The powers and principalities over Hawaii, the first one is fear. The second one is pride. And then the demon child of fear and pride is territorialism. Let's talk about fear. Um, surprisingly, fear is often the lens that believers interpret the world by, and many of them don't even know that they're walking in fear. Um, because when you're in a region that has such strong powers and principalities, uh, those things often become the baseline. Those things are the norm. And you don't realize that's the platform that you're standing on. There, it's not like people make this choice to be fearful. Like, you know what? I feel fear. Let's, let's be fearful today. That's not how any of this works. But I'll tell you what, it's amazing when we see so many believers, when we see fear broken off of them, they say things like, I didn't realize how attached to fear I actually was. I didn't realize how much fear actually impacted my daily living. Fear will often manifest here as the fear of man. It's not wisdom. It's the fear of man. And thoughts that will often come to our minds are what will others think about this? What, will I be shamed for doing this or thinking this? 
It's the exact same thing that made people worried in the New Testament that the Pharisees would do to them, that they would be, the Bible says, put out of the synagogue or put out of the temple. In other words, they would be like excommunicated from the faith just because they disagreed or felt shamed from the Pharisees. People think thoughts like, will I have to deal with other people's perceptions of me? Will there be kickback if I say these things? And the sad truth is that a lot of us will avoid confronting fear because it's too agitating. It's easier to create doctrine and theology around fear than to overcome fear. And we said this a couple weeks back uh, when the Lord said he's actually purposefully agitating us as a house. It's worth the agitation. He's actually stirring things up. And I felt like the more I prayed into it, the more glorious it became. He said, no, keep, keep asking for the agitation. Like these things need to be stirred up. And my point is that we will not allow fear to impact any part of our thinking, any part of our gatherings, or any part of what we do. And I don't mean just as Sunday night reunion. I mean as reunion the family, in your homes, in your schools, in your jobs. So I need you to repeat after me. Are you ready? We're going to make some promises back to God. We're going to stand on some truth based on his word. Here's the first one. Repeat after me. We will fear God alone. My obedience has nothing to do with man. Okay? You can take these on your own. I need you to do some homework this week and think about if fear is manifesting in your life, if it's impacting your thoughts. The next principality was pride. It's usually subtle. And it, it's this inner feeling that says we don't need anything outside of our circles. We don't need anything outside of this church. We only worship this way. We, we're only open to these things. God only speaks to us. We have the right way of doing things. Probably no one would ever say that, but our actions dictate that that's what we're actually thinking. And if we think that God is small enough to fit and be contained in our circles, then our God is too small. And listen, I'm, that includes us. We are not the highlight of Christianity for the past 2,000 years. I love what he's doing here, but I, I, I was thinking about this. I loved being in Seattle. I love Seattle Revival Center. They're a great church. Darren, you're, you're the man. I love you, man. And I loved going there because it was so different what God was doing there. It's a very different calling. It's a very different anointing. It's a very different path laid out for that house, but God was there and he was doing amazing things. Let me put it this way. It was no less valuable what he was doing there than what he's doing here. I found out that I actually needed it. I needed to be there. And I came back with new ideas, new breakthrough. And as I poured out to them, as I poured out into their staff in their church, God actually poured back into me. And what I started thinking about was this, is being around what God is doing in other environments actually refines your understanding for what he's doing in your environment. This trip, like, I don't want to be Seattle Revival Center. I love them, but that's God's call for that church in the Pacific Northwest. What he's doing there wouldn't fly here, and what he's doing here wouldn't work there. We have to understand that there isn't a best church. There is a, a, a blueprint and a map that God has laid out for every house, for every family, but the minute that we try to copy and paste, it's not going to work. It might look good, but it'll be dead, it'll be void. So being in other places where God is moving, it actually refines your vision and your calling. I came back just feeling so sharp about the vision and the calling of this church, and it wasn't because I went to all their staff meetings and they said, this is how we do it. That didn't even happen at all. But seeing what God is doing in other environments helps me to celebrate him 
even if it's not directly impacting me. It gives, it gets, gives me a chance to see that he's bigger than my church. He's bigger than my region. I get to glean from it, and I get to glow, grow from it. And it doesn't mean that now I'm going to become a member of Seattle Revival Center. It just means that God is really big, and he's really good at his job, and he loves all of his kids, and he's, so, he's up to something everywhere. And if he's doing something somewhere, I actually need a part of that. You know, it was a beautiful week. Um, a lot of it was us pouring into them through, like, the worship and the, the different teachings and sermons we gave. But they actually poured into us. Even just being around them was refreshing. Not because the, it's not like, oh, I like them better. No, it was just God was doing something new, and I loved getting that new side of God. It only strengthened and re-upped the commitment and the passion to what he's doing here. We say this all the time. Find out whatever God is doing in your generation and give your whole life to it. Find out whatever he's doing in your lifetime and give up everything to be part of that. Like, if he's doing something, why wouldn't you give everything to be part of it? What else are you going to do? You know? So let's, let's give the Lord a promise about pride that we're not going to come under that power and that principality. So repeat after me. We will serve our way in. Humility is our platform. God is bigger than my church. What he's doing everywhere is valuable. Yeah. So let's talk about when you mix fear and pride, it creates territorialism. That's all territorialism is. It's fear and pride. Territorial spirit is absolutely a power and a principality here. It's in this island on this, in this region. It's all over Polynesia. And one of the byproducts of territorialism is something that not many people like to talk about because they think that it's attacking the culture. It's not. Um, I believe God gave a beautiful culture to this region, but if we think that everything is all man-made cultures are perfect, then we need a refresher on kingdom culture. One of the things that people don't like to talk about with territorialism is that it causes a lack of hunger. Um, it leads to us settling for things that are less than. And it leads to us being old wineskins. Because pride says we don't need anything outside of our circles. And fear says anything I'm not used to is bad. The result is that we're actually insulated from what God is doing anywhere outside of our four walls. And pride and fear begin to say things like, what we have is good enough. We don't need to improve. We don't need to grow. Let's just settle for what we have. Let's settle for not um, having all the things that are available. And I, I'm, we're not just doing this because it's fun. We're actually taking a stand tonight. We're actually repenting because I know that this is going to grind some gears. But I'm telling you, these things have to be said. These things have to be identified. We have to be aware of these things. So let's make some promises to the Lord about the territorial spirit. Uh, repeat after me. We will not settle for lesser things. We will not allow our hearts to be lukewarm. We want what he's doing now. Yeah, light a fire within us, God. Um, can you guys stand with me? Because we're going to repent.
It's important that we identify these things so that we don't in unintentionally partner with them. And um, I think there are people here tonight who are realizing that we've even probably some intentionally, but mostly unintentionally created theology that allows for and actually caters to lack of breakthrough actually caters to things that are promises and provisions for us that we don't have. Um, and so we need to repent. Um, some of us are finding that, oh my gosh, I actually have been operating with the powers and principalities from this region. I actually do have a lot of fear in my life. I actually do have a lot of pride in my life. I actually do have a territorial spirit, whether it's with my church, with my, my neighborhood, with my city, with my home. We will not partner with this region's narrative. And it doesn't come from being a big, strong person and standing. It comes from submission. It comes from submitting to the Lord. It comes from submitting to his promises. It comes from submitting to his provisions. And I, man, I just keep coming back to this thought. I cannot get rid of it. So I'm going to give it back to you again. But it's that, that Catherine Kuhlman quote where she said, don't, don't you grieve the Holy Spirit. He's all that I have. And we have to understand that partnering with anything other than the Holy Spirit actually grieves him. A territorial spirit, a power, a principality, that actually grieves his heart that that's infiltrated his bride. We have to have an increased reliance on him. It's in our weakness that he's made strong. And we think, well, then I'm just going to be weak forever. No, no, no. It's in your weakness that you're made strong the outcome is that when you become weak, he makes you strong. But that involves a death to self, and it involves a cost, and it involves a lot of holy frustration because I know there are things that have been promised to you individually. There are things promised to your family, things promised about relationships, about salvations, about health, about finances that God actually has promises about. He actually has provisions for that you're not walking in. And you have two responses. You can either remain ignorant of his promises or you can be tolerant about not having those things. Or the other option is you say, no, I'm not going to let these things become an obstacle that I go around. These are things that I will overcome. And it actually requires you to submit and to die to self for these things. So will you pray with me? We're just going to repent right now corporately. Father, thank, no, I'll pray. <laughs> you can pray it out loud. I don't care. Repeat after me. It's just going to be a long thing to remember. Um, Father, thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for your light, for your life. Thank you that we already are a light set upon a hill that we don't have to try to shine. The glory of the Lord has risen upon us and your light is already shining. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in this region. We come against any powers and principalities that have infiltrated our hearts, our minds, our thinking in this church, in this region, in our neighborhoods. We will not partner with those things. We will only partner with you God. We will only let our minds be influenced by you. God, give us a quickening of our hearts to identify those things. When those things start to rise up, that is not how you made us. And we, we just rejoice that we have the ability to rebuke those thoughts, rebuke our minds and come back under the mind of Christ. Father, this is your house. This is your church. These are your promises you've given us. These are your provisions. This was all your idea. And so we simply say yes. We simply come into agreement with the light and the hope that you carry. Thank you, God. Thank you, King 
that we get the opportunity to repent, to change our minds, to start thinking the way you think, to come under your, to come into agreement with your perspectives. We purposefully submit these things to you now. Any fear that has entered our lives, any pride, any territorialism, any lack of hunger, we lay these things at the feet of Jesus. We don't want them anymore. You cannot influence us as a house anymore. Yeah, so we pick up love. We pick up joy. We pick up righteousness. I just declare that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans says. The kingdom of God is mm, righteousness, peace, and joy. So let joy come. Let joy come. Father, thank you for your heart. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what you're doing here. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5 live at Kahala Mall. Aloha.